with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you do, anyone ever have a job you absolutely hated? Hands like popped up quick for some of you. I, I, I would say that it, most of us have. If you've worked any amount of time, uh, you've likely had a job that if it didn't rise to the level of hate, um, that you just really didn't like it. Um, you would have much rather have done something else. Or maybe you like your job, but you just don't like your boss. I think we've probably been there as well. So if you could just have a different boss, then your job would be much better. But here's the question, and, and where I'm kind of going with this. How are we to honor Christ even within the most difficult working situations. And if you're the boss, how are you to treat those who work for you, work with you? Well, look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, the easy thing to do here, maybe even the tempting thing for me to do here, is to jump directly into the work, workplace application that this has for us today. I've already started to hint at it in the, in the opening remarks but here's an important rule of thumb when it comes to studying Scripture. We can't understand a passage or what a passage means for us until we understand what it meant for the original readers. So we have to ask, well, what did the text mean and, and how would it have been understood at the time that it was written? So how, how would the Ephesian church, in receiving this letter, how would they have understood these words of instruction? Because we're still following here the, the same flow of instruction, the same line of instruction that we've been following the past couple of weeks. God's design for authority and leadership and responsibility within the home. Everyone under the headship of Christ. Christ is the head. And then wives, as we looked at a few weeks ago, like submitting to their own husbands, asked to the Lord, husbands loving their wife as Christ loved the, the church, children obeying their parents in the Lord, fathers instructing their children in the Lord. All of which, to, uh, well, this points us back to some basic context that we have some understanding of. Husbands, wives, children, parents, We've got context of that. We understand those roles. But none of us have a practical working understanding of a bondservant master relationship, a, a slave master relationship, as the text is talking about. 
And any understanding that we do have is likely built on an American understanding of race-based forced slavery, which means that coming to a text like today is much harder for us because there's so much to unpack and context that we have to pull out. Maybe even impossible for us to understand how the Ephesian church would have understood these words of instruction. Again, the importance of proper context. See, we don't do this passage justice if we interpret bondservant or slave with an American understanding of slavery. Nor do we do this passage justice if we interpret a a bondservant or a slave as the direct equivalent to an employee today or a master uh, to the exact equivalent of a boss. So a few questions to help get us started today. Number one, what was slavery like in the first century Roman world? So brief history lesson, and by brief history lesson, I mean brief in the broader scope of how much we actually could cover here, especially considering all that could be unpacked. But the entire societal structure of the time was built on the institution of slavery. Almost every household either having slaves or, or being slaves, some sort of connection for almost everyone in Ephesus. See, it's been estimated that there were some 60 million slaves at this time within the Roman Empire. You just think about that. 60 million. Which means, practically speaking, a city like Ephesus and other large cities like it at the time would have had like one-third of their population all be slaves. One commentator states, In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that hardly anyone thought about whether it might be illegitimate. For both slaves and masters, it was just life. It's all they knew. It's the way the world functioned. Some were born into slavery. Others were entered in through parental abandonment, so they came in as as orphans. Some, Some as a means to repay debt that they could not repay otherwise. Others entering in voluntarily as a pathway to gain Roman citizenship. So again, first century Roman slavery was way different than slavery experienced here in America. As slaves in Ephesus and thus the surrounding region, they didn't just do menial work. They actually did most of the work, including oversight positions and management positions. They actually worked in almost every single profession. Some slaves were actually more educated than their their owners. Slaves could own property, some even owning other slaves. They were able to save money and eventually purchase their own freedom. And somewhere around 50% earned their freedom before the age of 30. So this wasn't a, a for life thing like we may have in our minds. Additionally, there there was no slave class. Slaves were were literally present in all but the highest of economic and social structures. Now, in saying all of that, it it doesn't mean that there weren't abuses of the system. There certainly were. Doesn't mean everyone was treated fairly. They certainly were not. Also doesn't mean this was the way it was supposed to be. It isn't. It's just the way it was. But you know what was not a factor in this Greco-Roman world of slavery? Race. 
You could not just walk down the street and differentiate a slave from a master in Rome by the color of his or her skin. Again, a far cry from the slavery that we have grown up understanding here in America. Which brings us to another question. Why doesn't the Bible just condemn slavery outright? You ever thought about that question? Like, why doesn't I just condemn it outright? Why doesn't it call for an outright abolishment of slavery? It's an often asked question. I think it's a fair question. Because slavery is clearly seen in its practice throughout the, the Bible. We've seen its abuses. We've read about its abuses. We've seen lasting effects. So instead of telling one how to, to live as a slave or as a master, why doesn't it just say, hey, fight to abolish it? Get rid of it. Well, a few thoughts to that end. Not exhaustive. Please hear me, this is not an exhaustive by any means. But a few thoughts, three specifically. One, the Bible clearly prohibits the stealing, buying, and selling of persons. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. You can jot that down. You can turn there quickly. But Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, telling us, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, echoing such behavior as a violation of the Eighth Commandment, specifically mentioning enslavers, meaning don't steal, which includes people. So any form of stolen, kidnapped, forced slavery has been and always will be wrong. It is sin. There's no way around it. There's no way to justify such actions according to the Bible. Joseph's brothers were in sin when they sold him into slavery, which is a reminder also that even in the midst of the greatest of evils, God is still sovereign and God is still working and he's calling his children to be faithful in even really difficult circumstances, whether we understand them or not. Two, the, the Bible never endorses slavery. Doesn't condemn it outright, but it also never endorses it. As we see, it just exists in a part of a life within a fallen world, which again does not make it right. But even with its abuses within the Roman world, in Rome, we see that there was much good that did take place. Just consider how it provided a means for care for orphans and widows. Provided a way to pay off debt instead of falling into abject poverty. Provided a pathway to Roman citizenship. Again, we're needing to understand this, this passage not in light of an American context, but in light of a Roman context. Three, the Bible tells us how to live in a fallen world. Expounding on that just a little bit further, the, the scriptures are perfectly sufficient in telling us how we can be redeemed from our sin through faith in Christ. Praise God that through the scriptures we know that we can come into relationship with Christ. We can be called children of God. The scriptures are also perfectly sufficient in telling us how we're to live godly lives in Christ Jesus within this fallen world. And that means within whatever circumstance we find ourselves. So rich, poor, seasons of trial, 
seasons of joy as husbands, as his wives, as children, as parents, as slaves or as masters. Abolition and social reform are not the Bible's primary focus. Walking as children of light is in the midst of darkness is the focus. Now, does that mean it's wrong for Christians to advocate for social reform, like an abolishment of slavery or an abolishment of abortion or, or such things? Not at all. It's just not our primary task. Christians very much will be involved in these things. But what's the church's primary task? To preach Christ crucified. To make disciples who are able to walk as children of light in the midst of the darkness, teaching believers to, to swim against the current, not spending all of our efforts trying to redirect the flow of the river. Put things like social reform, social justice as primary, and we're putting the cart before the horse. The gospel must always remain primary. Other things will come as they may doesn't mean they're not important. So taking a, that bit of understanding, let, let's look at the responsibility of bond servants. What are they to do? Well, number one, bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. The word, the word excuse me, the word obey being the exact same word directed at children in verse 1. It's to do as instructed by the one placed in position of authority over you. Which, as you can imagine, has been ripped completely out of context and abused throughout history. But biblically speaking, what's obedience to look like? Like, in other words, what's the motivation behind a bondservant's obedience? That's the question. Well, look, look to the text. The motivation is to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As you would Christ being the key. So just like with children in verse 1, obey your parents in what? In the Lord. Or wives, in chapter 5, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. All obedience and submission being done in and unto the Lord. In fact, just look with me at verses 5 through 8. Just kind of walk through there with me. Is it the earthly master or Jesus who the focus is placed upon? It's Jesus. Verse 5 as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 8, he will receive back from the Lord. All this meaning what? Everything you do, everything that we do, we are to do unto Christ. For Christ so yes, a slave would have an earthly master. Similar, but not exactly the same as to how you would have a boss. Now, he, he could have been a good earthly master, or he could have been a bad earthly master. 
But regardless, who is there our master? Who's our master, church? Christ. Christ is our master, which Paul is teaching us what? He's teaching us that even in our earth, even if our earthly master or in our, in our context, our boss is the absolute worst, and there's nothing you can rightly do to change your circumstances as much as you would like to, because a slave couldn't just change his or her master, couldn't just hop on indeed.com and get another job. We can at least try that. But what could they do? What can we do? Turn our focus and our obedience to Christ. Why? Because there is no higher calling than obeying Christ. Even the most demeaning of jobs has purpose if Christ is then seen as our master. Now let's break this down a little bit further. Practically speaking, how do we do this? Like, How do we obey as unto Christ, to our boss, our earthly masters? One, through showing respect. Through showing respect. Bond servants being told to obey their masters, how? With fear and trembling. Now let's be clear, this isn't a cowering at a master's whip. This isn't a cowering at an abusive boss. No, not at all. It's with fear and trembling as you would Christ. It's a reverence for a position of authority. Meaning even if the person holding the position of authority over us is in so many ways unworthy of respect by their words and by their actions, we're still to show them respect. Why? Because our respect is directed ultimately to who? To Christ. Which is really hard, isn't it? Like when we really start to put this into practice and we start thinking about this, this is really, really hard. I had a manager when I was a car salesman who was the absolute worst. He fit that definition. His idea of motivation was, I'm not joking here, was literally to yell at you and tell you everything you do is bad. And so he would go around and just look at everything you do is bad as a means of motivation. He fudged numbers. He outright lied to customers. Was as literally as two-faced as they come. He would sit down with a customer, hey, 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 walk around, turn the corner, Like, just the way he was. Every stereotype you had of a bad car sales manager, whoo, he was the poster. Like, he was it. So, no, it was not easy to have any respect for him or to much less show respect for him. How did I, how did I do it? I'm going to admit right off the top, not perfectly. I do not hear me saying, oh, this is the model for how you do it, and I've got it down pat. <laughs> I'm a sinner saved by grace. Sometimes my frustrations did get the best of me. And when they did, 
I had to do even what was more humbling and go in the best way I could and find a means to apologize to somebody I did not respect, which is equally, if not more, hard. But I tried to make every effort to respect him, not because he had earned it, but because, like it or not, he was the one that Christ had placed over me. Now, does that mean that I would lie when he told me to lie? Nope. I respectfully refused. Now, could that have cost me my job? Potentially, yes. I actually thought it was going to on, on multiple different occasions. Did it cost me some commissions? Yeah. Some fairly large commissions. But I wasn't going to lie to get it. Tempted? Yes. Who's my, earth, who's my ultimate master? Christ. Not this guy. So I respected it and I obeyed up until the point that, that doing so would cause me to, to sin. If that line was going to be crossed, then obedience to Christ came first. No matter the cost. For many throughout history, such obedience to Christ first has even cost them their lives. It's not just an inconvenience. It's literally costing their life. Not just a job, but their life. But these are the, the real life situations that many of you find yourself in every day. The will of your employer versus the will of Christ. I'll let you fill on the, in the blank as to what that decision and circumstance entails. And that decision that you make may bring consequences. But this is where you find out who your master really is or who it is that you're submitting to as your master because your response will, will give that answer. See, the church in Ephesus included Christian slaves, Christian slaves who in many and most cases worked for unbelieving masters just as many of you have unbelieving bosses. And what is a lack of respect for them do. It, it tarnishes our gospel witness in the workplace, does it not? Amen. So not only it tarnishes our gospel witness with our boss, but also our coworkers who are watching. But show respect, even under the greatest of pressures not to. What's it do? It shines the light of Christ. Opens the door for, for conversations, maybe with your boss, but for me, it came more from my coworkers. Jeremy, how do you put up with letting him talk to you like that? Want to know? Has nothing to do with me. What do you mean it has nothing to do with you? I'm saying it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus and the Spirit's work within me. I can't do this. Conversation opens to the gospel. Maybe not like just keep going in that conversation right there, but it comes back. Hey, do you think you could pray with me? Moments that are planting seeds that open up opportunities. Put it this way. Obedience to Christ, it doesn't go unnoticed. Conversations in the break room, blasting the manager, 
Those are easy to jump into, aren't they? They're tempting to jump into. But no place. We have no place in the Christian life for speaking or acting in a disrespectful manner to one superior. Face to face or behind their back. Which just brings us to number two. How do we do this? With a sincere heart. Again, as you would Christ. So not just obeying when the, when the master or boss is looking. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Oh, here comes the boss, let's get to work. But rather doing our, our very best in every situation, with every task, when the boss is looking or not, as you would Christ. Why? Because as Christians, we are bond servants of who? Of Christ. So yeah, don't like your job? Don't like your boss? Yeah, you may be tempted to, to pack it in and only do your job half-heartedly. But not so if we're to walk as children of light. We're to be doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. We're not to be a bunch of complainers. Is that hard? <laughs> again, absolutely. But again, we don't work for the primary purpose of pleasing man. We, we don't just work to get the pay raise or the promotion. We work to please God in whatever job or task that he has given us to the very best of our ability. He knows the desires and the motivations of our heart. Number three, we'll also obey with a heavenly focus. See, there's no promise of promotions or pay raises and believing masters or believing bosses in this life, which is why I'm not going to stand here and tell you, okay, if you just work hard, think right, have positive thoughts, and, and all your dreams are going to come true. They may not. They may not. You may very well never get the promotion that you so desperately desire. Or you may get that promotion. And then it may turn out to be nothing like you had envisioned in your mind. What if slaves who, who were never able to buy their freedom, was their life wasted? Not at all. If their life was lived for Christ. Best advice I can give you graduates goes for all of us. But don't waste your life. And I mean that. Don't waste your life by pursuing the pleasures and riches of this world. Go after and spend your life on that which will matter 10 million years from now. Work as unto Christ. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Again, not talking about earthly treasures, but heavenly glory. Whether slave or free, heaven is our home and Christ is our king. And it's in him we have obtained our inheritance. And in him we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Therefore, live, my friends, with eternity in mind. Now, turning our attention briefly to masters. Masters, be like Christ to your bondservants. The key set of words here being in verse 9, masters, do the same to them. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat them with the respect and sincerity of heart that you yourself want to be treated with. Now, masters and bosses aren't to obey their their workers. We're working in this whole context as a structure of authority and responsibility. But they are to respect them. And if you want to be respected, show respect. Threatening. So stop. Stop your threatening. So threatening may be a a man-centered way of, of fostering fear, but it does nothing to garner respect. It's certainly not leading like Christ. See, Christ is the master of both slave and of the free, the boss and the employee. We're all equally under Christ's lordship. So whether husband or wife or child or parent, slave or master, Christ is our master. He is our inheritance, and there is no partiality with him. We all have equally sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are equally deserving of his just judgment for our sin. And if we are in Christ, we are equally children of God, all brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're in a position of authority over another, plain and simple, Strive to treat them like God has treated you through Christ. See, everything that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, from roles of husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, all telling us how to walk as children of light. Light standing in stark contrast to the darkness that surrounds us. People see a biblical marriage functioning as God designed. It draws attention. Children obeying parents as unto the Lord. Fathers instructing their children in the Lord. It causes people to ask questions. Slaves obeying masters. Masters respecting slaves. Oh, a bright light in the darkness. People asking, how is this even possible? Our answer, Jesus. The work of the Spirit in our life. All glory given back to God, which Lord willing does what? Draws more people into the light. And in this present darkness of which we find ourselves living, that's exactly what is needed for the children of God to walk in the light, to be the light within the darkness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray. You will use your word to continue to to sanctify your children. Make us aware of ongoing sin in our lives. Bring us to repentance. Let us live as you'd have us to live. Let us shine bright in the darkness of this world. May Christ be the one we find all satisfying and seek to please through our obedience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. 
And thank you that Christ was fully obedient on our behalf. Even to the point of death. Death on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to the preaching of God's word through song.